This is episode 40 of the Landscape Photography Show, and on the podcast today, we have special guest Greg Snell, and I think Greg brings something really different to the table for a lot of photographers, and it's a really different interview than what I normally do because I really wanted to highlight for a lot of people the importance of expanding beyond just photography. Now, Greg is a photographer, don't get me wrong on that, but I really wanted to talk to Greg a lot about the videography aspect of photography. You know, a lot of photographers have asked me, and seeing my YouTube channel and how it's grown significantly over the last three years, Greg has done something similar with that. And I wanted to ask him the question, you know, is it too late for photographers, landscape photographers in particular, to start something on YouTube, to start using more video, to learn that capability. And I think now, since we have DSLRs and mirrorless cameras that do so well with video as well as taking still images, that is a real possibility for a lot of us who have been putting that off because they didn't want to invest in other pieces of gear. You can use the exact same thing that you're using right now. So Greg and I talk a lot about that side of photography in this podcast. And I know in the middle of every podcast, I do have this section that is dedicated to sponsorship for the podcast. I wanted to move that from the middle this time and bring it straight to the forefront and we'll get to Greg's interview in just a second. But I do want to highlight one of the things that we talk about in this podcast since Greg was the videographer for the F4 road trip project featuring Thomas Heaton, Nick Page, Gavin Hardcastle, and Adam Gibbs. Three of the four have been on this podcast. And Gavin actually sent me the F4 project to really review, dive in, you know, is it realistic to have this for photographers? Is this good that people can can watch it, learn something from it, and, and even be entertained by a photography like video course? And I would say 100% yes. I watched the entire thing. I thought that if you go on a workshop, you know, you're basically at the mercy of the weather, you're at the mercy of everybody else's timeline, you have access to one instructor. In this, you get to go through it on your own time, you get to have four different in- instructors with drastically different photography styles, and you can learn and take something from each one of those and kind of pick what style suits you and your photography. So I really liked it from that standpoint. And of course, it was very entertaining and fun to follow different plot scenes that were going on throughout the F4 road trip project too. So would I recommend it? Absolutely. Am I getting paid for this? No, I'm not. But hey, Gavin, Adam, Nick, Thomas, if you want to drop a check in the mail, go ahead and do that. In the meantime, we'll get to today's episode. The Landscape Photography Show is a podcast where you can listen to your favorite photographers talk about their journey in photography. It's a place where you can be inspired and also learn how to take better photos. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. 
Hey, what's up, guys? We're here with Greg Snell. I honestly haven't been following Greg all that long, but in the short amount of time that I've known who he is, what he does, and kind of the the things he does with a camera, I've been really impressed. And I reached out to Greg via email through his website, and he graciously agreed to come on from northern Germany. So, Greg, what's up, man? I'm doing well, David. Doing real well. Nice to uh, connect. I think there's about a seven-hour difference between us here. Uh, you're in the U.S., right? Tennessee, I think. Yeah, it's always a little sketchy, like trying to navigate time differences because Tennessee is straddling two time zones, so it's like real sketchy on if people are talking about Eastern or Central time. Yeah, I uh, I get a bit confused as well, but luckily we've got the internet, so it's easy to figure yeah. out. Yeah, man. Well, I'm interested to hear your origin story. I know you've probably shared it a hundred times by now, but if, in case anybody listening doesn't know who you are and where you came from and what your background is, I think that's a great jumping off point. Yeah, good shout. Okay, so my name is Greg Snell, and I am from Canada originally. I'm from Toronto, um, and that's where I grew up. Um, very comfortable upbringing, and I felt like I needed a bit more adventure in my life. And instead of going to university, I packed up my car at the age of 17. I got just turned 18, which is like just after I graduated high school, and uh, drove to British Columbia. So chasing the mountains and a bit of adventure. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I mean, it was really normal for a lot of my friends to go to university, and that's still sort of like the social norm in in Canada and the U.S., I think. But uh, I decided to not go and do sort of a typical gap year, which turned into uh, three or four years. And yeah, I just met a ton of people from all over the world out in BC, a lot of ski bums, a lot of Australians, Kiwis, people from Europe, and they got me hooked on travel. I went down to Chile and Argentina when I was 19 to go skiing, stayed down there for like three months. And just got addicted to travel. And luckily for me, there's an adventure tourism program in British Columbia. It's a two-year college diploma. So uh, I signed up and uh, that was my post-secondary education. And since there, it's just all been about travel and tourism for me. When did you first pick up a camera? Oh, in high school. Um, I got a point and shoot in grade 12. So it was a little Canon power shot. Uh, unlike there you, you I didn't get the opportunity to shoot film in high school. There wasn't a photography course. I wish there was, but uh, it was a gift from my mom, actually. And I, I actually first started really taking photos when I got to British Columbia. And those photos are just terrible, but it's a really nice insight into what our life was like uh, back then. Now, why? What? enamored you about travel so much great question escapism uh you know it's just like a pleasantville upbringing in middle class canada and there's just no like adventure aspect so i think i was chasing chasing dreams and i grew up reading like chronicles of narnia and and these amazing books that are like almost like fantasy novels where you just want to go out and see the world and and uh, yeah, I felt like a bit of a caged bird, so I just had to had to leave. And as soon as I got a taste for travel, this is like probably 2005, 2006, um, when Lonely Planet was still like the Bible. You know, the internet was around, but we didn't have really. I think Facebook came around like 2008, maybe 2007. Mm-hmm. So it was like just at that cusp of uh, of the internet really taking over. 
And yeah, I just wanted to see the world. So I went for it. Did you travel a lot when you were a kid? Not really. Great question. But uh, no, my parents, uh, the furthest we ever went really was the US. I did a lot around the Northeast of the US because from Canada, we're really close to New York and uh, New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts. Who's more friendly, Canadians or Americans? Uh, Canadians. <laughs> I think that's... <laughs> Why is that? Reason. I don't know. Good question. I think we're... Uh, we have um, far less people, so the odds are, are better, I guess. Or no, the odds are probably better <laughs> in the U.S., actually, with way more people. But uh, no, I don't know. I mean, Canadians just have a, a pretty good international reputation as being polite and, uh, and kind. Uh, and, you know, we work together, I guess. There's less hostility. So, yeah, I'd say Canadians are nicer. Throughout your traveling, you know, we were talking before we jumped on about you know, you've basically been nomadic for the last three years. Um, are there tricks that you use to use your camera gear and, and travel with your camera gear and then also managing that jet lag that seems to constantly put you on a stretcher when you are traveling so much? Yeah, I've got a few tricks. I, I have uh, insurance for all my gear. So that takes a big weight off my shoulders. If ever anything gets like broken or lost or stolen, I know I can get it replaced. And I have had to call on that insurance a couple of times and they have come through. So mm. that's uh, that's a nice little trick. It can be a bit expensive, but if you've got a ton of photography gear and you're traveling all the time, it's definitely worth it. Uh, to combat jet lag, I like to set my phone to the uh, time zone that I'll be arriving in and then try not to have too many like crazy flights one after the other after the other. Uh, for example, I do work in Patagonia every year and flying from Patagonia to South America can either be really easy or it can be a huge hassle. So I try and, and find the easiest flights possible, even if they're a bit more expensive. Your time is worth money, I think. So if you're going to arrive at a destination jet lagged and you can't do anything for a day because you're too tired, then what is that day worth? Right. And mm -hmm. if that is to you is like 500 bucks or something, then you might want to put that towards a better flight. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure, man. And I would add on like to your insurance answer is that read the fine print and what insurance you choose. When I first started, I made that mistake of not reading into it. And I had, you know, one of my first cameras on the Great Wall of China and I dropped my camera bag and my camera broke. Of course, like the one place when you're in China where you actually want to take some historical and, and like travel photography and I couldn't do it and they wouldn't replace my camera because in the fine print it said when you're traveling internationally we do not replace your camera equipment uh, that's crushing man I'm sorry to hear that it was rough it, you know but it was a good lesson I think you know stuff like that you know based I don't know if you've had the same experience but reading into all the details is not my strong suit. I'm a more trial by error person. Okay. Yeah, no, I hear you. I think uh, living in Germany for the last few years, it's uh, given me that bureaucratic sense of understanding the finer details, but uh, <laughs> translating German is not easy. So I want to, I want to ask you, you do a lot of videography too. 
should photographers be learning more video? And, and the reason I say more video is because it goes beyond, you know, a YouTube live or an Instagram live where you're just using your phone. Yes. The simple answer is yes. I think a lot of photographers have a, um, have an interest in the technical aspects of their camera and of photography and they want to learn about, um, you know, exposure and, and, um, I guess like shutter speeds and doing long exposures and, uh, light metering and that natural interest transitions really well into the basics of videography. And most cameras nowadays can make, take great videos as well, especially, uh, mirrorless and DSLR cameras. So even though videography is different from photography, there's a lot of, uh, of skills that kind of can transfer over. So if you're already interested in photography, you're probably going to enjoy video as well. Do you think it gives you an upper hand in seeing more unique compositions and shots when it comes to photography? No, the opposite, actually. I think, really? that, yeah, composition in video is extremely important. And if you're already a photographer that understands like the basic uh, composition rules, you can apply those into your videography and, and then add movement. And I think that uh, somebody who works really well with a gimbal can create some incredibly fluid movements that hold different sort of compositions within a scene. Uh, and... Yeah, it's, it's actually much uh, better the opposite. Like photographers who have a good eye for composition, they are going to create great video because they already have that natural sense of being able to set the frame. Okay, so give me an example of that because I think photographers would struggle with the movement aspect of that. Okay, so an example is uh, I was shooting last night in Hamburg for uh, my upcoming vlog on Sunday and we were in a, um, a subway station and I set a composition sort of looking down the main tunnel of the subway. And there's some incredible lights that are, are right in the middle. And there was a train coming towards me on the opposite side. So I had my, my camera set up uh, sort of looking straight ahead. And I pressed record and I moved towards the train that was coming towards me on the opposite side. And then sort of uh, shifted and, and then brought the camera down towards the train and did a full 180 and then followed the train out of the tunnel completely opposite from where I started. And those two compositions were, were very strong, uh, well-balanced compositions. And that movement between the one to the other, I think, is what really made that shot. How do you get the mindset to, to try that out, though? Is that coming naturally to you or is that based on examples that you've seen done? It's both. I think it, it comes with experience and the more you shoot in different situations and locations, the better you get at sort of uh, uh, reacting to the scene. But then it's also, I watch a lot of Netflix. I watch a lot of television programs. I watch a lot of YouTube. So I'm kind of learning from uh, professional cinematographers and, and directors of photography as well. You know, and some people, they use very different styles and I pick up on that as well. And I don't think it's good to like emulate exactly what you're seeing, but it's definitely good to be inspired and to learn from what others are doing. I think the natural reaction of people would be 
you know, I don't have the tools to do that. I don't have the post-processing equipment or software to be able to pull something like that off. Do you have a rebuttal to that? Yes. Uh, Mr. Beast, which is like one of the most famous YouTube channels right now, started making videos with his iPhone. Uh, there's iMovie, you know, I, I get that Premiere Pro and Photoshop and Final Cut and DaVinci Resolve, uh, these like uh, Adobe Edition, they're all kind of overwhelming programs for post-processing audio, video, photos. But uh, like anything, the more you kind of learn about it, the more you try, trial and error, as you said, the better you get at it. And that's the case with everybody I've ever met. So I think that my rebuttal is you are your own worst enemy in a sense. You know, if uh, if you don't get out there and try, then it's never going to it's never going to happen. What are you using? What do I shoot with? Is that the question? Your post-processing, sorry. Oh, so I'm using Adobe Premiere Pro most of the time, but I've been not liking it lately. The 2020 update is... Uh, has had some bugs and it's kind of crashing and I don't know. I've been told by Gavin Hardcastle, who I think you know, uh, that I should switch to DaVinci Resolve. So we'll see. Maybe I will. You mentioned YouTube. You mentioned you know a couple different YouTubers. Your own vlog. Uh, Gavin has a vlog. Um, is it is it too late in 2020 for photographers to start using YouTube? No, not at all. But the question is like, it, it, does that mean though that there's like, is it too late in regard to you're never going to be successful on YouTube? You know, there's so much under, underneath that, that question. As a photographer, you can start YouTube whenever you want. Like it doesn't matter if it's now or 10 years from now. Um, but it's the intention behind starting YouTube that I think is in, in very important. Um, so no, it's not too late. That's the short answer. What do you mean by intention behind it? Yeah, so let's dig into the heart of it. Let's, so, let's go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly. I think that there's far too many people see that see YouTube as like a way to get rich and famous. I think that there's a, a serious problem in North American Western society where we're so focused on like fame and fortune, money and power uh, that we are – like morals are kind of skewed as much as we would love to be like great people all the time. We're still like chasing the American dream of like financial freedom and success. And I think people see YouTube and it and Instagram as like a, a get rich quick kind of thing. And there may be a lot of listeners that completely disagree with me and that's fine. I'll, I can counter argument myself. I think that there's also a huge portion of people on YouTube that use it as a creative outlet. You know, if you're taking photos every weekend, uh, who do you share them with? Where do you put them? You know, do you print them and put them on your wall and only your friends and family see them? Or do you try and put them out there to the world? You know, you have a website, you have maybe an Instagram account, you have a YouTube channel. That's a really good place to uh, have a portfolio as I see it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've grown you know, from basically zero to nearly 20,000 in about two years, what have you done to do that? Um, yeah. So, you know, I'm, I am focused on building a community on YouTube because I believe that as a freelance videographer and photographer, it's one of the best ways to, uh, sh like show my work and, 
be able to grow my business. So I've really focused on staying consistent on YouTube and learning as much as I can about video creation and production and trying to create the best quality that I can about the, the best topics, but staying true to myself at the same time. And then collaborating as well. Collaborations are huge. Um, I joined forces with Brendan Vanson about probably three years ago. Uh, and he was a big inspiration to me to try and grow my YouTube channel. Uh, and yeah, I can accredit a lot of that initial uh, inspiration to him. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot to be said. What do you think about, this is fresh on my mind since, um, you know, it, it's something that I've had to deal with on YouTube myself of posting something that's, you know, you may be going through as a creator, uh, and, and thoughts that you may be having as a creator, you make the post and the response comes back, stick to photography or stick to videography, um, or, the repercussions will be, or you lose subscribers. Are subscribers kind of that end game, the end goal of doing a YouTube channel? No, no. I think everybody listen, listening to this would agree with me. It's, I think it's, it's more about your own um, expectations. And a lot of that uh, negativity that you see, which does happen on the internet, there's a lot of unaccountable verbal abuse. It does? Oh, <laughs> you, you don't know? Yeah. So <laughs> the worst part about that, though, is that there's no accountability. You know, people can just get away with saying some pretty incredibly uh, rude and, and hurtful things. And, and I get that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's part of that decision to put yourself out there. And that's fine. A lot of people that I've met that are uh, much more popular, I guess, on YouTube, we get thousands of comments. They tend to just ignore it. I think that that's probably the best way to avoid the negativity. But here's something for you. like Even for small channels like myself and, and, and your channel and even my girlfriend, Nelly, uh, who has a YouTube channel that's uh, quite small, what like what does that matter? Why does it why is it important? I think that your mental health is almost more important. The social media environment that we currently find ourselves in is extremely stressful, especially for people that are putting themselves out there, you know, once a week or every day on Instagram, in the case for a lot of people. And the trick I think is to balance your own expectations with your own uh, health and happiness. And that's a lot easier said than done, trust me. Did you have a point where that became evident for you? No, not really. But uh, I have noticed sometimes that I create unnecessary stress feeling like I need to produce a video once a week for YouTube because consistency is key. And if you want to see a channel grow from zero to 20,000 in two years, you got to create content. You know, YouTube is a bit of a machine in that sense that if you create daily vlogs, you're going to get more views. And, uh, and that's just the way it is, even if your videos suck or if they're only like two minutes long, you know, like a one take of you just talking to a GoPro, at least you're putting something on the platform, right? Which some people might click on. So that, that unnecessary pressure that I put on myself sometimes, uh, I've learned to kind of avoid or at least uh, balance it out with something else. What's the amount of weekly content that you've found is 
good for your own expectations and mental health? One upload a week on YouTube. Uh, I used to do two a week and I successfully did that for over a year. Uh, and then things started to change. That was probably like six months ago. And I did start to feel a bit of pressure, like mental health wise. And I thought to myself, okay, how can I alleviate this? Uh, and I found the answer by just cutting it in half and focusing more of my attention on one video per week instead of forcing myself to put out two. You know, Greg, before we started recording, you and I were talking about uh, COVID-19 and kind of what the repercussions were for you and, and, and personally traveling versus, you know, staying in one location. What impact has this pandemic had on your outlook on photography, your outlook on where your business is going? It's changed my, uh, my short-term outlook, I think. Not so much my long-term. I think by 2021, if there's not like a serious second wave, my business will likely kind of start to return to, to normal. Uh, but the short-term has definitely uh, impacted my life uh, significantly and my photography because the last three months we've been uh, – in one place up in North Germany, which is very comfortable. It's nice. We're sort of surrounded by nature and farmlands, but I don't find myself as inspired to get out there and, uh, and take photos. Uh, except for last night, actually. Yesterday, I went out to Hamburg to try and do some uh, some of the sort of midnight sun photo uh, session, and that was really fun. It's more architecture and city and urban. And that was pretty cool. So, You know, even if you're not inspired to go out to shoot have you found appreciation for local places uh no <laughs> <laughs> that's fair i mean people would probably expect to say oh yeah you know i'm so inspired by a barn uh <laughs> no i think i'm jaded man like i've been to almost 100 countries in like the last 10 years um i've been traveling a ton I've seen some incredible locations and I'm very lucky and privileged to have had those opportunities. And as much as I want to get excited about like farmlands and cows, it, it has been much more challenging than I thought. Um, but that's okay. Cause you can stay busy doing other things. You know, I think that when we were nomadic, we were always sort of uh, planning and, and trying to figure out where we were going to be next and, and finding places to rent. And there was always this endless to-do list. And for the last sort of three months, I've been able to catch up on a lot of that stuff. And, uh, and I'm feeling good about where my business will be a year from now, even though everything currently is postponed. Growing up in Canada and now living in Germany, have you found it difficult to kind of like change your view on culture? No, not at all. So um, I don't think you know this, and it might be interesting to your listeners, but when I uh, graduated, well, when I went to school, actually, the first year of adventure tourism, we had to do a practicum, which is uh -huh. like sort of an internship. And I got mine in Costa Rica, and I was okay. 20 years old. And I moved down to Costa Rica for three months, and I liked it so much that I, uh, I actually asked my employer if I could stay. And they said, if it's okay with your university, yeah, sure. You know, we'll hire you. We'll give you a salary and then, and then you can stay for a year. So I emailed the university, well, the college and said, Hey, can I, you know, skip a year and come back a year later? And they said, yes. And that was my first year abroad in Costa Rica. I was 20 years old. 
So since then, I've lived in Argentina, Ecuador, Tanzania, and now uh, Spain for a year, and now Germany. So for me, it's uh, this is where I feel most natural with in, in like immersed in other cultures. Nice. How long usually does it take you to adapt? I don't know, two days, not even. Two days. Yeah. And then I have to understand a bit more of the language. That tends to be a bit more tricky. Uh, when I lived in Tanzania, I tried to pick up Swahili. And as soon as you start to learn like basic things like thank you, hello, good morning, uh, then it becomes a bit easier. But, uh, you know, obviously it, it takes decades to learn the ins and outs of a, of a culture. But I feel comfortable within just a couple of days usually. I mean, unless it's like really crazy, which I, I'm not chasing like war zones or anything. So, you know, what's funny is it, it's almost like you, when you go, this is my experience, at least when you go, you, you like buy a course or something on the language there and then you learn all you can and you get there and they're like, no, nah, that's, that's not how you say it. <laughs> that's so true, dude. Yeah. I found, uh, you know, all this like pre-planning that I used to do would end up like digging me a hole once I actually arrived on location. So uh, I tend to like would book maybe my first two or three days. And then if it's not like high season in the location, then just kind of wing it from there. But uh, you're right. It's it's so true. You you think you're prepared and then you get dive in the deep end and you don't know how to swim. Now you filmed what was just recently released at the time that we're recording this at the F4 project with Thomas Heaton, Nick Page, Adam Gibbs, Gavin Hardcastle. You were the, the cameraman for that, the person filming everything. Um, first of all, how did they rope you into that? And why would you agree to go and shoot with that bunch? Yeah, I hope uh, your listeners know the uh, the history of the F4 road trip and, and the guys that you mentioned. So assuming that they do, uh, I got roped in through Thomas Heaton. So Tom has worked with Brendan, who I mentioned earlier in this podcast, uh, for the last two seasons down in Patagonia. And Brendan and I did a trip down to Patagonia a year before the, the workshops. So uh, Brendan asked me to come back down to Patagonia to assist him and Tom leading their first adventure workshop in Patagonia. So that's where I met Thomas Heaton. And uh, him and I uh, became friends, hit it off. We've met a couple times since then. Uh, he hired me to work with him in Iceland uh, two years ago. And uh, yeah, so when this came up, he immediately thought of me and said, hey, dude, do you want to come and help us film a uh, epic road trip landscape photography workshop adventure? So <laughs> to answer your second question, uh was it like crazy i think that was the basis of your question why yeah. why so to me like i watch uh gavin and nick i didn't watch too much of adam before we went on the trip but i really enjoy gavin's vlogs i think he's got a great sense of humor and uh and i obviously know tom pretty well and i knew what their whole f4 kind of collaboration was about so when tom mentioned their idea it was still really fresh like there wasn't a lot of uh structure to it. And uh, in 2015, I developed a three-part mini-series for documentary uh, programming and went out and filmed three documentaries. One was in Sri Lanka, one was in India, and one was in Australia. So I already had like this kind of production sense, and I wanted to bring that to these guys and say, okay, well, 
this is the idea that uh, that I think we could run on. And it, it worked really well, actually, kind of just brainstorming on the fly of how we could develop a story and what it was going to be about. And it was a bit of like a creative challenge. So um, the other thing that I didn't realize until we were actually there is that what they tried to do and what they succeeded in doing is really revolutionary. There aren't any landscape photography uh, online courses or tutorials that are anything like what we produced on the F4 road trip. You know, it's it's definitely uh, setting the bar quite high for a mix of uh, entertainment and education in the industry of, uh, of landscape photography. Give me a good behind the scenes story because when I had the rest of the crew on minus Thomas Heaton, I haven't had him on yet. Um, they were kind of mum on sharing stories because it hadn't been released yet. Give me a good behind the scenes story of, of what the dynamic was of all of y'all in basically a, a camping trailer. Okay. Uh, like funny or dramatic? I mean, it's your choice. Yeah, maybe I should uh, avoid the, the drama. Let, let's uh, go with funny. Yeah, so um, so Gavin's a, a really talented uh, comedy writer. He's got these amazing ideas. Like the way his brain works when he's developing skits is really impressive. And uh, we were driving together um, one day for like five hours and we were both trying to think about how we could like throw a curveball into the mix and really twist up the story. And we both decided that we would create a character uh, for me. And I was going to be like this um, kind of loud and obnoxious surfer dude from California. And, uh, and we just developed it on the fly. And throughout the next like two weeks, it was impossible for Gavin and I to like be in character at the same time. Like it was just <laughs> absolute giggles. Like, freaking schoolgirls like they just couldn't deal with the character it was really really funny and uh it made it really challenging to actually film sections with gavin so like there was one example in the it's like 5 30 in the morning we got up for sunrise and it was his uh it was his turn for me to film one of his sessions mm -hmm. and the first thing he says is oh i've got a face like a smashed avocado and for some reason i just pictured like this you know a dilapidated avocado that somebody threw into a brick wall and I just couldn't stop laughing, dude. And you see it in the, in the road trip where he goes, are you still laughing? And then he tries to say something. <laughs> he goes, are you still laughing? I'm just behind the camera in tears, like in tears, trying to hold back these giggles. It was so, so hard to, uh, to film around, around Gavin when we, when we started to getting into that, into those giggles, which was quite funny. Yeah, that's fun. That's hilarious, man. Uh, how old are you? How old am I? Uh, that's yeah. a, a change. I'm 34 years old, 1986. Okay. All right. I'm almost 33. We're around the same age. <laughs> what Do you see any comparisons between young photographers versus, I don't want to say seasoned photographers, but maybe photographers who are a little bit longer in the tooth? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, to take my own example, I never shot film. And I also didn't study photography. I studied adventure tourism. So photography for me has always just been like a way of sharing my experience while traveling. And then video was even better. So that's why I started making videos. But I'm self-taught and, and I learned everything 
through the internet. And then I started making videos for travel companies. And then I started my business, you know, like it all kind of just fell into place. And I love it. It's definitely a passion of mine. But I think like the big difference between, say, me and Adam Gibbs is Adam is a tr- professionally trained photographer. He's been shooting photography as like his number one job for 35 years. And he shot film. Now, I know you're younger than me and you s- studied photography in high school and, and shot film. So, you know, you can't say that every young photographer has never shot film because a lot of us have. But I think another big difference is uh, social media. You know, like we're kind of grown up with it, I guess, millennials, you know, we're mm-hmm. much more comfortable sharing our, our lives on social media, at least I think so, or at least we're able to navigate social media a bit better and understand how valuable it is. So more of an entrepreneurial mindset. No, 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 not at all. I think that there's a lot of, uh, of established photographers who run great businesses I think the difference is that we might be a bit more like social media savvy. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. But then again, Adam's got a great uh, YouTube channel. Like he knows how to, how to do it. So it's, it's definitely not like a broad brush, you know, or, or sorry, an individual. It's more of a broad brush. But uh, no, I think film is the big one really, because you do see people that are probably 10 years older than us that were, if they were into photography, they probably never shot digital because it didn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. when these and when these first digital cameras came out, they weren't great quality at all. So, you know. Yeah. And I appreciate you giving me credit on film. I would hardly, you know, say that I studied film in high school, really. I basically took film photography as a way to get out of doing a geography class <laughs> in high school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That sounds like uh what like art for me to get out of French or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, where people, where can people go to find more about you uh, and, and really start to follow you and your journey? Yeah. YouTube is probably the best place. So if you just search Greg Snell on YouTube, um, that's where I tend to, to share the most. And it's, it's usually very up to date as well, but uh, yeah, that's easy answer. Awesome, man. Well, he's Greg Snell. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. All right. No, it's been fun. It's been a bit serious, but uh, but that was cool. I hope I've given some insight into your listeners about uh, sort of who I am. And if they want to come check me out, send a message and I'll get back to you.